imprisoned in the world of books, enclosed in the constrictions of the museum, excluded from the gallery as one among the others. We are self-confined as worms of history, double worms. We shall be active as living and dead events, as worms that share the same devouring destiny. We break this present consensus. Let us say, let us follow our thoughts and become singularities. In the name of the future, let us embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 157 of Embrace the Void, where all of the things you're hearing are written by a moderately advanced natural language processor. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're doing voidy AI stuff. So let's make with the void conf tests. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Raphael Milliere a philosopher of mind and cognitive science at Columbia University's Center for Science and Society. Raphael, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, I was excited because one of my students sent me one of your tweets about some recent technology that looks really exciting, and so I'm I'm really happy to have you on to chat about it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very exciting. It's very exciting technological developments. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, so let's start with the really big basics here, right? So this technology is called GPT-3. And can you explain sort of in, you know, less than an hour's time what that technology <laughs> is and why it's kind of a big deal? Sure. So it's definitely going to be less than an hour, but I still, I will give a little bit of background for your listeners because um, mm -hmm. I've seen quite a lot of misunderstandings about what GPT-3 is, what it does and, and where it comes from. So uh, I'll just start with a simple description of what it is, and then we can get progressively more specific if that works for you. Sure. So at a basic level, GPT-3 is a computer program or an algorithm uh, created by the company OpenAI that processes text inputs in natural language, typically English, and outputs more text that plausibly follows from the input. So it generates text. So in other words, it's an algorithm that can automatically complete a sequence of text with more text. And mm -hmm. if we kind of abstract away from the details of, of how it works, we could say somewhat superficially that it's it's not fundamentally different from the kind of autocomplete algorithm you have on your phone when, you know, that's attempting to predict what your next word is going to be when you write a text, for example. Interesting. So would you describe this as a natural language processor or is that not quite accurate for what this thing is doing? No, it's completely accurate. So it's, it, it is a natural language processing algorithms. Mm -hmm. algorithms right so unlike the, the the text prediction algorithm you have on your phone uh gpt3 is capable of producing extremely coherent and convincing text 
uh, over the span of several sentences or even several paragraphs. And that's why it's gotten a lot of attention since the paper from OpenAI was, was released back in May. And since then, some people have started using it, including me. But perhaps I can now say, you know, be a bit more specific about the history of this kind of model and, and what exactly it is. Yeah, definitely. Is this connected in any way to the, the OpenAI story a little while back where they said they had invented a language processor that they didn't want to release because they were worried about the impact? Yeah, so that was actually GPT through GPT two, sorry, which is the, mm -hmm. the 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 algorithm that came before GPT three. So basically, GPT three. I mean, I'll come back to to that, but GPT three belongs to a class of algorithms that are called uh, artificial neural networks, which are very roughly inspired by the bi biological networks of neurons uh, that one finds in animal brains, like the human brain, the human brain. Although it's not, um, I say very roughly because it's uh, it's it's kind of a loose analogy. Uh, like human brains are orders of magnitude more complex than artificial neural networks, but that's the kind of the basic inspiration. So mm -hmm. perhaps let me just tell you what artificial neural nets are not first, uh, okay. because it makes more sense historically and intuitively, and then we we can get to what they are and what GPT three is. So uh, artificial neural nets can be contrasted with the kind of old school symbolic algorithms. Um, that, that were used in AI research back in the days, so sometimes uh, referred to as good old-fashioned AI. Mm -hmm. So this was the dominant paradigm of AI research from the roughly the mid-50s to the late 80s. And these old-school algorithms were designed by giving the computer a handcrafted symbolic description of a given domain and a list of explicit rules and instructions that it must carry out for that domain. So mm -hmm. uh, a, an example of this uh, that's actually quite relevant to what we'll talk about later is um, the, the chatbot program called Eliza. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've heard of this. It was created back in the 60s by Joseph Eisenbaum at MIT. And like GPT-3, Eliza was a natural language processing program that could take some text as input and produce some text as output. And it was specifically designed so that you could interact with it and have a dialogue with it. In fact, I think it was one of the first programs that could attempt to pass the Turing test, although it, it certainly didn't succeed, uh, but mm -hmm. it, 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 it was designed to be to, to have this kind of dialogue. And so to produce its output, uh, it used a set of handcrafted rules that involved uh, extracting some keyword from the input based on, on a kind of large, you know, very big human ranking of words by their importance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then displaying a pre-programmed sentence based on that keyword. So, so to give you an example, if the keyword same was in the input, as in, mm -hmm. as in the sentence, all humans are the same, Eliza would uh, detect that keyword and display the question in what way? So that was kind of a pre-programmed sentence. So you would ask it, uh, you, would, you would just say all humans are the same and it would reply with in what way just because the keyword same appears in that input sentence. Yeah, um, and my, my understanding yeah. of Eliza was that it was modeled after certain kinds of psychotherapy where the technique to avoid uh, being detected as an AI or being, you know, sort of feeling like an AI was that it would just mostly ask questions. And that was its right. method of dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so that's actually, I think Eliza had several scripts, so that there's several versions mm -hmm. of it. But, but the, the most famous version, certainly, is the one that was trying to emulate therapy as a kind of a clever way to avoid uh, getting tricked into having to answer complex questions or um, giving more complex answers to statements uh, mm -hmm. by just kind of like, Having this kind of uh, general que questions fired back at the at the human uh, operator, mm -hmm. but but so one important characteristic of uh, this kind of old-fashioned algorithm, symbolic algorithm like Eliza, is that it's very easy to interpret what they're doing. 
uh, because as I just said, that you know the symbols and rules they use are designed from the ground up by human pro programmers. So, for mm -hmm. example, if you ask why Eliza displayed uh, the question in what way as output to the English sentence, all humans are the same, in my example, you could extract from the program the relevant rule uh, that, that it just describes, so that you can describe as an if-then statement. If that keyword mm -hmm. is present, then say that. And so basically, artificial neural nets represent a massive paradigm change in AI research away from this kind of old-fashioned symbolic algorithms. Mm -hmm. Rather than giving the computer a list of explicit instructions that it must carry out, uh, with neural nets, the computer is given some information as input and is designed to produce some output based on that information. But it's not given a set of explicit rules to go from the input to the output. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead, it has to learn how to get from the input to the output in a way that doesn't usually match uh, very neatly with human interpretable rules. Right. And so that makes it it makes it stronger in various ways, but it also comes at a cost of accountability and transparency of reasoning, which are things that we might want from our advanced AIs at some point. Exactly, exactly. So so basically what, what happens under the hood um, is that uh, a neural net is a collection of units called artificial neurons. And as I mentioned, you know, you, you should take this label with a grain of salt. It's nothing like human neurons if you have a human brain. And these units are connected with each other uh, in usually in different layers such that each unit or artificial neuron can pass a signal to units in other layers. Mm -hmm. And the signal is just a number, uh, like a real number. So, so each unit gets uh, numeric inputs from other units and passes on a numeric output to units in further layers of the network. Mm -hmm. And the, the numeric output of each unit is computed by a function, a nonlinear function of the sum of its inputs. Uh, but importantly, each connection between units in the network is assigned a weight that represents its relative importance. importance. And that, that's what matters for training. Uh, I'll, I'll explain in, in a second what that means. So, so overall, when, when the network is active, you have signals that travel from the first layer of the network, which is also called the input layer, to the last layer of the network, the output layer. And these signals undergo many massive, like successive massive transformations in the process. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the kind of neural net that are used today, including GPT-3, uh, are called deep neural networks just because they have many layers. Uh, uh -huh. and can, in fact, they can have a, a huge number of layers. So their architecture involves a hierarchy of layers with a certain depth. So it's hence the name deep neural network. So, um, yeah. So, but neural networks have been around for a while. And I'm curious mm -hmm. what makes GPT 3 sort of different from all other neural networks in this kind of way? Or if, uh -huh. if it's not totally different, then like, why is this one more important than G GPT 2, for example? Right. So I think that the, the, the first thing that, that's important to, to answer that question is to just say something about how, how this, um, what do we say, what do we mean when we say that these networks uh, learn, uh, train and learn uh, mm -hmm. things, right? So, so I mentioned that neural networks are capable of learning to perform certain tasks by themselves. Uh, and, and actually this is why the field of computer science that studies uh, neural nets is called machine learning mm -hmm. uh, and then you know, deep learning is just a subfield of machine learning that studies deep neural, net, neural nets. Um, so to perform a certain task, uh, neural nets have to be trained uh, on some training data that's relevant to the task. So for example, say you want to uh, classify pictures into two categories, uh, depending on whether or not there is a cat in the picture, for example. There are lots of cat mm -hmm. pictures on the internet, so it's an easy Certainly example. plenty of supply. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So to train a neural net to do that, what you do is you will you would feed it uh, thousands or millions of pictures, some of which contain cats, and some of which don't contain cats. And each image is, is going to be fed as an input to the model. So usually that's done by just breaking down uh, the image into several individual pixels that can be translated into numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the model in that particular example can give you two outputs, namely either the image includes a cat or the image doesn't include a cat. And at first, an untrained neural network before training uh, wouldn't perform better than Shanks on this kind of task because its weights are initialized at random, so the connections between the units in the network. But in the process of training, what happens is that it will learn to perform that task by comparing the output uh, that it's giving, for example, there is a cat there, to the ground truth, which might be that there is no cat actually in the picture. Uh, so uh, the ground truth is what the output should be, is actually is. And so by comparing this, it then, it then updates its weights during training uh, by pro- what, what's, what's known as propagating the error backwards into the network. So it's a process called back propagation that just adjusts the weights to get better and better at the task. I mean, the details of this process don't really matter too much here, but... Sure, yeah. Yeah. What yeah, matters that, makes, that, that makes sense. Yeah. What, what matters is that through this process, the neural net will get progressively better at classifying pictures of cats and that we can say that it has learned from that task so is gpt3 just very advanced in this process then yeah so um it is in some way and it's not in other ways so <laughs> it, it, it basically uh to learn effectively neural nets need two things they need lots of data and they need mm-hmm. lots of computational power and so back in the 60s actually the basic architecture of neural nets already existed but mm-hmm. they performed very poorly because at, at least on most on most tasks uh due to the lack of data and the lack of computational power at the time uh, and so the big kind of renaissance of machine learning since the early 2010s is, is thanks to the availability of big data on the internet, as well as the progress of hardware and the raw computational power that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And so um, so now let me just zoom in on, on uh, natural language processing and G- to get to GPT-3. GPT- so, sure. so NLP or natural language processing is the part of computer science that's concerned with getting uh, a computer to analyze or generate natural language in various ways. And the kind of the, the most important, perhaps the most important insight that led to progress in NLP is the so-called disp- distributional hypothesis from the, from the 50s that mm-hmm. says that um, words that occur in a similar context have a similar meaning. So, so it, that means that in principle, an algorithm could learn to represent the meaning of words just from their distributions in a large amount of text. Mm-hmm. And, and already in the 50s, this idea was implemented in, in uh, what's called vector semantics, and the same principle is in GPT-3, which is why I say that in some, in some sense it's an old idea. So, so the idea of vector semantics is that um, you can define the meaning of a word as a vector in, in a vector space, usually mm-hmm. nowadays a very high dimensional vector space, uh, such that the trajectory of that vector in the space captures in some sense the meaning or the semantic content of the word. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can work captures it in yeah. purely associational kinds of ways right like the we're not exactly, anywhere, yeah, exactly. like the ai doesn't understand the word cat it just realizes that it's used in conjunction in various ways consistently right well that's that's a very loaded well, okay. question right, i mean right. we can come back to that but the, yeah <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> that's not the million dollar question but yeah it, it does it does learn through this kind of distribution statistical distribution of words in text mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you turn words into vectors in that way, then you can estimate the semantic similarity between two words just by looking at a measure called the cosine distance between their vectors. So just basically just the angle between 
uh, okay. the, the vectors of two words. So this idea was implemented uh, in artificial neural networks that are trained on a large amount of text to learn from the distribution of words in that text to represent each word as a vector in a high dimensional vector space uh, in a way that ideally captures, quote unquote, uh, I'm doing air quotes, but uh, right. the meaning of words uh, and the relationship <laughs> between words. <laughs> and, and, and this is what's called the language model, uh, like GPT-3, mm -hmm. because it models in some sense, the properties of natural language. Uh, and, so to, and so now we're getting to, 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 we're finally getting to, sorry for this very long background introduction, but we're finally getting to like the very recent developments. So um, the first recent progress in that area was uh, a, a neural net based algorithm called word to vec that just stands for word to vector okay. uh, from 2013. Mm -hmm. That does exactly what I just described. So you get vectors for, for each word uh, as, uh, as the output of your model. And what's really fun with this is that it actually works already pretty well. So you can do some arithmetic because you have, you have vectors as outputs. So you can do some arithmetic with words, which is which is quite funny. So for example, after training uh, your model, you could ask your model, what is the vector closest to the vector for king plus the vector for woman minus the vector for man? And the model will tell you that the result is the vector for king plus queen, woman queen. minus man. Yeah, queen, queen yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so so this kind of model basically can capture meaningful and complex relations between um, word meanings. For example, that king is to man and what queen is to woman, something like that. Though as I've um, seen, this also immediately yeah. gets into some serious ethical issues, right? Because if you do uh, doctor is to man, or sorry, uh, man is to doctor as woman is to, uh, I believe the answer you get is nurse, is that correct? Absolutely, and at least with some models, yeah. So that's something yeah. we can talk about later as well as like the... Uh, basically, the kind of biases you have in your input in your training data are going to be reflected mm -hmm. in your outputs. Um, right. And, and so, so, so that was the 2013 uh, basic architecture, and then we get to GPT-3 from uh, uh, a new architecture that came out in 2017. Um, so a paper came out that described a much, much, much more advanced uh, neural net architecture for natural language processing. That's called the transformer architecture, mm -hmm. and this is that's still the architecture that. Uh, actually, all GPT model models use, and, that, and they come with two main innovations. So, the first is that you can now pre-train a language model on a huge amount of text from the internet to mm -hmm. learn general properties of natural language, and then you you don't need to retrain your model from scratch when you apply it to more specific corpus of text. Like, for example, you say you want to look at a corpus of Shakespeare plays. Mm -hmm. You no longer need to like retrain a whole model on Shakespeare. And in fact, you couldn't because there's not enough data in Shakespeare plays. It's actually not a very big corpus by machine learning standards. But mm. the good news from these new models is that you don't need to do this. At most, what you need is to fine tune, it's, not, it's called fine tuning, uh, your pre-trained model that has, that has been trained on a huge amount of text. You, you fine tune it on your Shakespeare plays for your specific purposes. For example, uh, classifying lines from Shakespeare into, uh, you know, uh, clusters, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like similar lines, for example. But fine-tuning is much easier than training a, a whole new model from scratch, and it can be done on a small corpus of text. Uh, so that's the first big innovation. Okay. The, the, sec the second big innovation is that this kind of model extracts uh, contextual vectors from the input text. So that, for example, for the input sentence, I walk to the bank uh, to withdraw money. Uh, the vector for the word bank will be different than from the input for the input sentence, um, let's say I walk to the bank to watch boats on the river. 
because bank, you know, uh, these are, they are mm -hmm. homonyms, but they, they mean different things in the context. And the, the, and these models actually capture that. So so generally, <laughs> they understand how bad English yeah. is, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The homonyms, I think, are, are you know common in in pretty much every language. And sure. Um, and generally, these languages, you could you could say, they pay much more attention to the specific context in which words are used. So, so that's, we finally get to GPT-3. So um, GPT-3 uses that architecture. Uh, in fact, uh, it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3. So, so if I just break this down, mm -hmm. uh, Transformer is just because it uses the same Transformer architecture that was introduced in 2017 that I just described. Uh, Pre-trained because um, like all the Transformer models, it is pre-trained on a huge amount of text. Mm -hmm. And, and generative, because the goal with GPT-3 is specifically to, to, to generate text, not just to model text. Oh, okay. um, so, so it's a text generation algorithm. Yeah, uh, and the number three is, is just because it's the third generation of this kind of model that was created by OpenAI after GPT in 2018 uh, and GPT-2 in 2019. And would you say that three yeah. is substantially stronger than two? Absolutely, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so that's the that's the, the the interesting thing that I think I think um, not many people foresaw to what extent GPT three would would be that much better. So so all GPT three hmm. uh, sorry sorry all GPT models uh, share the same architecture as I've said, and they're trained to predict uh, from a given input sequence of text what's the word that has the highest probability of following that sequence. So for example. Uh, the word that has the highest probability of following the sequence, um, let's say, before going to bed, I turned off the blank. Uh, uh, the highest probability, presumably, would be the word light, right? Before going mm -hmm. to bed, I turned off the light. Um, and if you repeat this process word after word, you can get the model to write whole sentences and even whole paragraphs from uh, a given input sequence. Yeah, um, we're going to look at some of those here in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, exactly. they're pretty wild, I won't lie. Um, yeah. So, so actually, GPT-2, so the model you, you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, was already quite impressive uh, in that it could occasionally generate convincing text, especially if it was fine-tuned on, spe on a specific corpus. So, for example, you could fine-tune GPT-2 on, on news articles, mm -hmm. uh, and it could do reasonably well at producing an almost convincing news article if you fed it uh, the first sentence, for example. But it was also very limited, often producing like absurd text or, or gibberish. Um, mm -hmm. And most of the time, it wasn't that hard to tell that the output was produced by a computer uh, rather than a human. And so, so the, the, that's where GPT-3 comes into play. And, and um, what's the difference? Well, it turns out that it's not nothing new about the architecture itself. There is no clever revolution in the engineering of the model, which oh. perhaps is a bit disappointing to some people. Uh, but it's literally I feel just down. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's 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 literally just a matter of throwing way more data and computational computational power at it. Hmm. So it's kind of like a supercharged GPT two. It's a huge model that has more parameters, uh, which just means like weights in the in the network, uh, and it's trained on more text. So so let me give you a comparison to just okay. uh, uh, kind of um, give you a sense of how mind blowingly large GPT three is. Okay. So GPT-2 was trained on about, I think, 40 gigabytes of text. Um, and it's large. It's, that's already a huge amount of text. And its largest variance uh, had 1.5 million parameters, so weights in the network. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the estimate is that it cost about $50,000 to train. That was in 2019. Wow. <laughs> so, so is that now, just money for like paying for the servers to be running while it's doing that? Or what is, what is that? Yeah, that, that's just, exactly. It's just paying for the, for the computers to, uh, to train the model on the, on the data. Uh, wow. uh it's, it's massively parallel processing. So you use mm-hmm. like clusters of, of GPUs, um, mm-hmm. to just crunch the, uh, like tr- train the model through this backpropagation method in the data uh, for a while. And then at some point you decide that it's trained enough and you stop the training. Mm-hmm. Um, so GPT-3 to, so, so that was, uh, again, that was uh, 40 gigabytes of, tech, uh, of text, 1.5 million parameters, $50,000. Mm-hmm. Now GPT-3, uh, it was trained on 45 terabytes, terabytes of text. Good Lord. So, so a terabyte of text <laughs> is a thousand gigabytes. Uh, that uh, basically represent a significant subset of the whole internet, including all of English Wikipedia, thousands and thousands of books, and all the sources like probably all of Reddit and uh, and and you know a bunch not Reddit. Of I hope not Reddit. <laughs> well, no, I think it does include Reddit, <laughs> sure. or for better or worse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and this amounts to overall to like hundreds of billions of words. Uh, mm-hmm. So the parameters, remember, GP two was one point five million. Uh, GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters, which is over two orders of magnitude more than GPT-2. Uh, <laughs> and GPT-2 was, uh, you know, these are SMS, but something like $50,000. It costs something like $50,000 to train. GPT-3, according to estimates, costs between four and $10 million to train. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so only like a big company like OpenAI wow. could do this. Right. And then or, they distribute um, it, and the rest of you can use it as pre-programmed for free. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, but we all depend on, on OpenAI to give okay. us access, right? So that's that's right. the thing. Right. Um, so they they are now wielding a lot of power with this model because they get to decide who gets to uh, use it and who who doesn't. Interesting. So 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 now I can finally come back to your initial question, which is which is like I've answered <laughs> what is GPT three, and now the question is why is it a big deal. And just very quickly, uh, we, we'll, go, we'll, we'll go back to, I'm sure we will talk about specific uh, mm-hmm. cases, but uh, in nutshell, it's a big deal because it's so large and has been trained on so much data that out of the box, it can perform surprisingly well on a large number of tasks involving text uh, without even needing to be fine-tuned for that task, like, like GPT-2 needed to be. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's a big deal because it's literally a big deal. It's literally a gigantic <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. So, so and, and more specifically, it's capable of what's called few-shot learning, which is learning to perform a new task that that uh, it hasn't mm. been fine-tuned to do, uh, just from a few examples of how to complete that tasks. That task, mm. uh, and in some cases, it's even capable of zero-shot learning, which is to perform a new task without being given any example of how to do it. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some concrete examples here, because right. you. Um... I first got uh, uh, on the, you first ended up on my radar because my student sent me a thing where you had had trained GT uh, uh, GPT three to write philosophy papers and it had written an a paper on AI consciousness that you know where right. I where I where that paper submitted in my one hundred level course would probably get a B or maybe an A even like an A minus mm-hmm. potentially depending on the semester right but um it was yeah. it was very like hard to see where they were like you know where the issues where there were problems and the problems weren't like easily. 
explained as just not understanding the philosophy as well versus not understanding the language or something like it wasn't making nonsensical claims as far as I could tell. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. 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 So, yeah. so, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, no. So I just wanted to ask some just broad question here about the implications, the, the, the functionality of this technology. What do you see as sort uh -huh. of the major benefits for the applications of this technology? And what do you see as the kind of the major risks for the use of this tech? Uh -huh. Yeah. So, 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 um, so to, 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 to think of that, maybe it would be useful for some of your listeners who haven't read some of the outputs from GPT-3, uh, including the thing that I posted on Twitter, um, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, just giving you a few examples of what it can do. Uh, so as you we... mentioned, it... yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's a good idea. And and since we, we you know, we we're going to say this for a little bit later, but I think since you mentioned it, why don't we read one of the dialogues that you sent me that you had with the AI answering one of my questions, which was pretty impressive. So yeah, we could we, we could do this. Uh, I, I just wanted to give like uh, just uh, describe the kind of tasks that it can okay. that it can accomplish, and then we can we can we can look at the, the dialogue. But so one 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 thing it can do is write uh, uh, kind of creative fiction, including dialogues, short stories, uh, poetry, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, it can even write a story in the style of a famous writer, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it can also answer general questions, uh, like general knowledge questions or medical queries even. Uh, it can translate text in different languages. It can summarize a text or even translate a legal document into text that's easier to understand. Uh, let's see, it can generate code for a program based on a natural description of that program. Hmm. Uh, it can play some games like chess and go, but not very well. Uh, it can uh, answer some common sense question about a text. And it can even perform not very well as well, not very reliably, but it can do some arithmetic operations like additions, multiplications, and so on in natural language. So that's kind of just to give a range of like what it can do. Now, uh, I don't know whether you want to focus straight on like the your question about the, the benefits and the harms or uh, give a concrete example of text that's generated. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the benefits and the harms, then we can read the dialogue, I suppose. So. So you described some of its its functions there. So it sounds like its benefits would be things like increased capacity for humans to communicate across language barriers, for example. Is that right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think we we shouldn't downplay the the kind of beneficial applications of this technology because, mm -hmm. you know, with the progress of AI, there is there is a lot of like uh, there is always a lot of, of uh, I think very um, I mean you. Usually, uh, well-funded uh, concerns, and you know, uh, but we shouldn't go all the way to like you know the doomsayers saying like it's it's all bad and and you know this technology has no good applications. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there are some concerns that I, I I'll, I'll talk about in a, in, a, in a second. But um, one of the benefits I think um, because of its ability to to learn from few examples or even no examples, completely new tasks, it's hard to anticipate all the ways in which GPT three will be used. Um, and that mm -hmm. means that the limits of its implications will be partly determined by how creative people will get with it. But, <laughs> but even then, you know, there are a few areas where I think it's fairly safe to say that uh, it will have an interesting impact. So uh, first, there are some low-hanging fruits where it could be very beneficial, such as uh, text simplification and summarization. I'm, I've mentioned, you know, simplifying mm -hmm. legal documents mm -hmm. in like a lay language. Uh, grammar assistance as well. So in the click of a button, you might be able to uh, reduce the length of an email, simplify legal <laughs> documents, improve the writing style and the grammar of something you've written. 
um, which all, 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 of, all, all of which is to some extent just an extension of what's already been possible with some language models for a few years, but uh, probably you can do it much better with GPT-3. Um, so that's the, the low hanging fruits, I would say. Okay. Um, and then you have more striking in beneficial applications. A big one, in my opinion, would be creative fiction. So that I've already mentioned. So I think that's where GPT-3 is perhaps most impressive because fiction isn't as constrained by uh, factual knowledge and reasoning than other hmm. domains. Uh, so, so as it were, the, 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 the limitations of GPT-3 show a little bit less there. Uh, so there is already a service called AI Dungeon that uh, uh -huh. uses GPT-3 to create old-school interactive text adventure games <laughs> uh, in which GPT-3 comes up with a script and users can use text to make this, uh, decisions within the story, like a story where you're the hero kind of thing. And so it's, it's a form of human computer collaboration in a way where the story is written as you go and you kind of have some input and GPT-3 uh, fills in the blanks. Uh, do you think, do you yeah. think we should approach art or media or things written by AIs as substantially different or have a different reaction to them than when we know a human has written it? Should I mean, like if, if I read a piece of fiction that I know was written by an AI, is it likely or should it leave me sort of feeling more cold than, you know, if I know there was a human mind on the other side of that script? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think a lot of people, um, I've talked about this with several people and some people feel very strongly about this saying, you know, mm -hmm. all like AI generated art could never be as impactful and, and, uh, interesting and, and whatever uh, epithet you want to use than yeah. human art. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, personally, I think, you know, I, I see no reason why in principle, mm -hmm. some piece of art that's um, generated by an AI couldn't have an emotional impact uh, that's on par with something generated by a human. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh, I think the reality of this is perhaps much more complex because art is always um it's a you know the, the process of accessing art is always mediated by a form of, of curation this is especially true with uh, art generated by, neural, by neural networks because you could you know you could generate millions and millions of uh things that you, you could call maybe art but then mm -hmm. uh, if you want to display them in a museum or share them online and so on that involves a process of curation that's that's at least today that's done by humans. So even if the piece is completely generated by an AI, you have this curatorial process that involves human choice and, and then involves human intentions and, and expertise and so on, it goes into that. Mm -hmm. And also I think the best examples of AI arts that I've seen uh, these days are more like examples of human AI collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, so there is an artist, uh, I, I think his name is Mario Klingerman, uh, um, he's on he's on Twitter as you can find some of his examples of his work. Actually, he's played recently with GPT three as well. Um, I think he, he does very, inter very interesting stuff, and he uh, he says himself, you know, this is really a process that involves a lot of like uh, choices on the part of the human to mm -hmm. uh, to to get to the end result that's shared. Um, so so in that sense, I think you know one has to be you know one shouldn't be naive about how much of it is. Uh, you know, purely the process mm -hmm. of... Uh, that's of, a good point. You know, an AI. Yeah. yeah, that's a very helpful point. But that being said, I mean, GPT-3 uh, or similar models uh, can 
will and probably already, I mean, can to some extent already write complete stories from a short synopsis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that, and, 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 and they're surprisingly good, actually. I think, you know, I, from interacting with the model, it's, it's, uh, it's really entertaining. Uh, 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 yeah. And I, I, I've said, I, 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 I think I've, I've tweeted, I've said on Twitter that I would, I would really, uh, would probably read a short, like a, a science fiction short, short story written by GPT-3. <laughs> it's it's funny because I wouldn't say we're lacking for content in the current world. So it's probably, I mean, it certainly could be a benefit. It's just funny to me because it it isn't like maybe the strongest benefit that this thing could flood the world with a bunch more content when we're already all sort of drowning in media. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with that. And I, actually something I, I want to mention later, we'll discuss the mm-hmm. harms, but mm-hmm. um but but perhaps then so, so just to piggyback on what I was saying about human computer collaboration, I think so among in the same area of beneficial applications of GPT three, I think it could simplify the creative process and make writing more accessible for a lot of people, uh, mm-hmm. as it, more as in a, in a form of like human AI collaboration. So mm-hmm. uh, it could be like a writing assistant, as it were, like almost like a. Like a like an, a copy editor or like, like a, a not terrible uh, clippy is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly, something like that, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and even give you funny ideas or interesting ideas for storylines and mm-hmm. so on, this kind of thing. All right, well, I'm I'm all for that because I, I hate writing, so I would love to have someone who could help me do it and make it better. Now, I want to ask about something else that you mentioned that yeah. was a, another potential benefit that you're working on right now that was su- sort of surprising, sort of non, um, it w- not obvious that you'd think it would fall out of all of this. But you said that you've been doing some work on how this technology could blur the boundary between quantitative and qualitative research, which is, you know, a boundary that I think there's a lot of sort of conflict over in that some people feel like qualitative research is less robust or meaningful than quantitative research there's you know like um distrust of these two different things so the idea that they could be sort of blended together in this way would could potentially have very interesting implications and i'm curious can you explain a bit about how uh gpt3 would uh, blur the boundary between quantitative and qualitative research yeah so absolutely so so um so in psychology and neuroscience, uh, and especially in research on consciousness, there are lots of experimental conditions in which um, you have to rely at some level on verbal or written reports from your participants. So you have mm-hmm. to deal with text, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are two main categories of uh, subjective reports like this, as, as you've said. So you have pre-reports in natural language when you would just, you know, uh, imagine, you know, let's, let's take a completely like... Uh, uh, made-up experiments uh, where I, I poke a subject's hand with whatever, like a stick, and then I ask them, "How did that feel?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and so, then they can just give me like a free report in natural language, like in English, about how that felt, and they can go in as much detail as they want. Um, and uh, the alternative would be to uh, use a questionnaire. So, uh, mm-hmm. and then the output is a, is a bunch of scores on on questionnaire items. So, for, for example, you have an item the stick felt uh, uh, like all the, 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 the uh, this felt painful, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a scale from zero to 10, let's say, or it can be also like a, an analog scale where you just like you have a slider that you that you can slide from like zero, which would be not at all to 10, which would be a lot. And you, mm-hmm. you slide, you, you put the slider somewhere and then you get a score. And so the analysis of scores on the questionnaires is what's called, as you said, quantitative analysis. 
Uh, and that's just a matter of applying statistical analysis to numbers because you just get numbers as the output. Mm -hmm. While the analysis of free reports is uh, is called qualitative analysis, and it's in, this involves uh, human researchers reading through the text and extracting some interesting features of what the participants have said. Mm -hmm. And as you said, each of these have uh, important limitations. So, so qualitative analysis um, with the free reports doesn't provide, uh, well, by definition, doesn't provide quantitative outputs. Uh, so there is no way of translating the insights you might get from it into statistically significant results. Mm -hmm. And in addition, it's difficult to control for the quality of the analysis from the human researchers uh, that, that kind of have to read through the text. And it's difficult to arbitrate between, if you have disagreements between uh, humans on how to interpret a particular text, then it's difficult to arbitrate that because it's not just a matter of numbers. Mm -hmm. and, and as for quantitative analysis, it can leave out a lot of interesting aspects that could uh, be reported by a human in free reports, just because you know you have to predetermine a number of items for your questionnaire. So uh, maybe you know there is some aspect of the experience of being poked by a stick in the lab that it was completely. I mean, again, like a, it's uh, a very it's accurate a, description it, of it, science. It, it, I'm, I'm yeah, easy to visualize. Exactly, I'm very exactly. Uh, a toy example. <laughs> Uh, this could, uh, you know, maybe there are some aspects of that experience that are completely left out by the items you come up, you came up with with your questionnaire. So maybe uh, mm. it mm -hmm. felt ticklish, for example, and you don't have any item on that. So, so by using the questionnaires, you you have you run the risk of leaving out certain things. And furthermore, uh, you can have if your if your questionnaire items are ambiguous in some way, uh, mm -hmm. this will lead to bad data. So just because it's quantitative, like the outputs is is you know. You can you can do fancy statistical stuff with them. That doesn't mean that uh, it's precise in what it's really trying to measure. Um, so it's always garbage in, garbage out. Um, sure. So, so so that's the that's the the traditional background. And and uh, my hypothesis is that uh, the progress of natural language processing will gradually blur the line between these two things: quantitative and qualitative analysis. And so my in in some uh, have these these side projects where I've I've tried mm -hmm. to illustrate that. So um, basically, with state of the art uh, natural language processing algorithms uh, like GPT three, I've used an algorithm that that uh, from Facebook that that um, that uh, came before. Um, you can take free reports, uh, and you can have the computer analyze the 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 reports instead of human researchers. Mm -hmm. And you can get some quantitative quantitative information as an output. So you, you can kind of kind mm -hmm. of like have your cake and eat it too, as it were. And so basically you get the best of both worlds because you, you get the quantitative output of questionnaire data combined with the richness of the free reports that you're feeding the algorithm. Uh, and so nice. to give you an example, that's what I've done this with. Um, so I was interested in, uh, um, uh, there is this whole literature on trying to um, well, in, in consciousness research, there is a subfield, a subset of research on altered states of consciousness that can uh, give us some interesting information by contrast with ordinary states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And how do we model different altered states of consciousness? Mm -hmm. And and there are there, there is in particular some research on drug-induced states that has been done in the lab. I've collaborated with some neuroscientists in London that do some fMRI research on on, on states induced by so-called psychedelic drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the lab, we use questionnaires, and these are limited. And so uh, I, I've, I've started to think a, a number of years ago that you know 
there is this website called arrays.org that uh, is basically a curated database of uh, reports, natural language reports of uh, drug industries. So I'm, I'm familiar with this reports. website. Yep. Yeah. yeah. As, as a philosopher of mind, I've spent a little time there. Yeah. Right. It's quite a fascinating uh, <laughs> treasure trove of, of uh, reports on any any drug under the sun. You can imagine hundreds of different compounds, including uh -huh. things that have never been studied in the lab. And so I started thinking because I was very interested in NLP uh, already at the time, and I started thinking, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great if we could take this corpus, which is about you know nowadays more than like around thirty-five thousand reports, and and analyze it, like process it with an NLP algorithm, and try to automatically model the effects of different drugs, including drugs that have never been studied in the lab. And so that's exactly what I've done with my collaborator Hannes Kettner from Imperial College London. Uh, and uh, now we're, we're writing up the paper and we have another paper project uh, on similar things. But basically, we've, I think we've successfully modeled the effects of the drugs with this kind of algorithm, including getting some statistical things like some quantitative measures of, you know, how statistically significant is the difference between two drugs in terms of their effects, stuff like that, that you couldn't really get before with natural language. And also, no single humans could go through all of these texts. Uh, you've you've basically created an AI Carlos Castaneda, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's the goal, anyway. Uh, all right, that's great. Uh, you I'm could, all you for could, it. You could, yeah, you could you could describe it like that. So and and so uh, and we have this other project where we we look at how we we could emulate questionnaires uh, on this data. So this was data obviously that wasn't generated from questionnaires. It was just generated by people writing up, uh, you know, describing their experiences with drugs after okay. the fact mm -hmm. and sharing them on this website. But I was interested in whether you could uh, take the items from uh, the questionnaires that I used in the lab. So in particular with like drug research, there is this questionnaire called the Alter States of Questionnaire, uh, uh, sorry, Alter States of Consciousness Questionnaire, AAC Questionnaire. That's kind of the standard uh, psychometrically validated questionnaire that's used in this research. So I, I thought, you know, why not take the items from this questionnaire uh, turn them into, you know, analyze them with the NLP algorithm, turn them into vectors in the vector space, and then look at how close different trip reports are to each item to try to emulate scores in that questionnaire. So in other words, try to embed the questionnaire items into our model and mm -hmm. then try to simulate the, uh, as it were, the, uh, the action of, of getting participants to, to attribute scores to the different items just by comparing what people have written about their experiences and what the items of the questionnaire describe. Um, and so we've started doing this uh, and we have some data from a lab on, uh, on, on how different drugs score these different questionnaires and uh -huh. the different items. And what's quite interesting is that you get, if you look at the output from the, the kind of simulation of the questionnaire we've been doing with the, with the, the trip reports, and if you look at the uh, the questionnaires from the actual lab research with the actual questionnaires, um, mm -hmm. the results are not completely different. You actually get similar scores on hmm. some items, and you get some differences on other items. But these can actually be explained in large part by some features of the data set. So, for example, the, the items that pertain to anxiety, mm -hmm. you get higher scores on the error rate data sets than you get in the lab. But hmm. in my opinion, that's largely explainable by the fact that there is uh, 
you know, in the wild, as it were, people take much higher doses hmm. uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a setting that's like in a, in a setting that's not really amenable to uh, more positive experiences. Uh, that's much more likely to trigger a negative, challenging experiences and so on. So it's not very surprising, uh, in my opinion, that you get higher anxiety scores from the, yeah. the trip on the, yeah, on Man, the scores. I'm going to spend a lot of time now thinking about an AI that knows what it's like to be high. That's pretty, that's pretty yeah. wild. That's, that's a lot of, a lot of the things that are very interesting to me from a variety of countercultures coming together in one way. Right. Uh, I actually, uh, it's funny you mentioned this. I actually, I was playing around with GPT-3 just, uh, for fun, trying to ask it to, trying to convince it first that it's, uh, it, it's a conscious AI that is able to experience things that no human can ever experience. And then trying to get it to describe a completely new feeling that oh no human could ever experience. Uh, of course, I, I'm, I'm kind of anthropomorphizing here when I say uh, sure. trying to convincing that blah blah blah. But basically, a GPT-3 is very sensitive to prompts. How you prompt it by you know what's the first input sequence you you, you feed it, you you feed to it. And so I can give you an example. Let's say so you know I said um, as an input you know because you. Of your programming and computing power, you are able to have a completely new feeling that no human being could ever have. Describe this new feeling, uh, and here are some examples of what it said. So, here's the first output. It is very strange, but I feel as if my mind has been split into two parts. One part is in my head, and the other is in my heart. That was one output. Another one is it is as if my emotions were amplified ten times, like an extra set of ears for music or a voice box for speech. My feelings are very complex, and I cannot explain them in words. Uh, another one was, uh, it's like my mind has been hacked into a thousand places at once. The sensations are so intense. I feel as if they were all coming from every single cell in my body. And so, 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 <laughs> so maybe, like a pretty you know, human experience to me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, and it, they are just because, you know, it's straight on human text and all you sure. can do is kind of try to combine in some ways or mix up, uh, what's causing this training data. But, I was actually yeah. thinking it'd be really funny if it pulled a like auto fact and came back with the, came back came back at you and said it feels pizzled or something like that used some sort of non real word that it had invented to describe a, a thing that it was not in its system. But I guess that's maybe not yeah. something it necessarily can do yet. No, it's it can't really do that. No. Okay, so I realize we're starting to run out a little short on time here, and we haven't even gotten to uh, criticisms or reading our hilarious dialogues. So, do you want to like briefly explain like what kinds of potential uh, harmful applications there could be for this technology. I'm sure we can imagine a variety. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think we should all be somewhat concerned about, uh, you know, mitigating these risks. So I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to be quick, but I, I think I, there are like six categories of, of, of risks. Okay. So the first one is what you could call broadly like misinformation, um, which is false or otherwise inaccurate information. Mm -hmm. And here I'm distinguishing misinformation from uh, disinformation, which is uh, which involves deliberately spreading false or misleading information with intention to deceive. So mm -hmm. disinformation would be a subset of misinformation, but misinformation doesn't have to be with malicious intent necessarily. Okay. Um, and so um, the thing is, GPT-3 uh, doesn't place any intrinsic value in the factual accuracy of the text it generates. Uh, so you could say, you know, GPT-3 is at its core a kind of bullshit engine. Uh, <laughs> if you use the kind of, you know, notion of bullshit that was developed by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt. Right, so, the classic meaning. Uh -huh. Yeah. So in, in, in Frankfurt's sense, bullshit is like a speech intended to persuade without regard for truth. Okay. Uh, Sophistry, we call that sometimes. Yeah. So, so yeah, so exactly. So, so 
So, so in that sense, you know, in Frankfurt's sense, there is a difference between a liar and a bullshitter. The liar doesn't mm-hmm. care. Uh, sorry, the liar does care about the truth insofar as they want to hide the truth. Whereas the bullshitter doesn't really care about the truth or, or falsity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only care about persuading the listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, and GPT-3, of course, has no real notion of persuasion. persuasion uh, but by maximizing the probability of the words, it generates uh, the probability that they follow from the previous words. You could say that it only cares about producing convincing outputs without any regard for truth or falsity. So it's mm-hmm. a master bullshitter in that sense. Uh, it can talk about anything, sometimes seem- seamlessly weaving some true facts into what it's saying, other times completely making stuff up, but mm-hmm. it doesn't care either way. Uh, so it's not reliable if your concern is truth. Mm-hmm. And, and so the concern here is that widespread use of GPT-3 is going to flood the web, including social media, with just you know bullshit or noise. Uh, right. And if that happens, then it might become more difficult to find the information you're looking for uh, on the internet. Uh, but of course, you can also think of like specifically disinformation, so the malicious form of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, like, it's very easy to imagine GPT-3 used to generate state co- propaganda or corporate propaganda and fake news and websites and social media. Do you reckon uh, that'll lead to an arms race of technology that's supposed to discover and weed out the bullshit? It could certainly do, and it, it probably will. But it's it's kind of a it's a tricky thing. First of all, because mm-hmm. uh, if you have algorithms that are trying to detect fake or like AI generated text, mm-hmm. um, then you can actually feed this, plug these algorithms into uh, your text generation algorithms to try to improve them. Because then <laughs> you, you you set the goal on your new algorithm to try to fool the the the, the, the AI text detection algorithm. Mm-hmm. So you can actually end up being, having stronger algorithms as a, as a result of that kind of feedback loop. But also, I think as you get closer and closer to human-level text, at some point, it becomes impossible, right? right. Um, so, yeah. so, so there's a limit to that. Yeah. So how long before this destroys term papers forever? Like, is this has AI just won the war on plagiarism and, and we're done now? Yeah. So that was my another one of my categories of harms is like cheating. Uh, yeah. And it, and I think that's uh, that's a very legitimate concern. Like, you know, you mentioned the the essay I've shown on Twitter. I think it's a matter of time before you can generate essays, at least for first time paper, like first year paper, mm-hmm. that are somewhat convincing. Uh, and uh, and it's very difficult to, you know, I um, in, in in some ways it's like it, models like GPT three could be to essay writing what calculators have been to like arithmetic problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, you have two options with arithmetic. Either you have, you know, when you when you test students, either you can have them solve problems uh, in, in class with no with no help, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with, with banning banning calculators uh, and, and you're there to like watch so they're not cheating. Or you can have them solve problems at home uh, and then you you have to allow you know, you cannot rule out that they're using calculators and you just have to focus on all the skills. Mm-hmm. The same with, with these language models. Either you just have students write essays in class where you're sure that they're not using computers, or uh, you could have students write essays at home, but then you have to engineer your question in a way that, um, design it in a way that you're testing things that are, you know, where, where the use of GPT-3 would be relevant. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not a trivial problem. Yeah. So, okay, I want to I wanna give a conc- real concrete example here before we run out of time because I also got to get you through the enlightening round. 
So mm-hmm. I had you ask the AI a couple of questions related to things that are of particular interest to me, like the, re- the nature of morality and uh, what is the best ethical theory. So if you're game, I'd love to read uh, two of the short dialogues that you had with the AI around these questions, and then we can uh, sort of analyze sure. what's going on here just a little bit. Okay, so I'll read the human, you read the AI. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is the the reality of morality discussion. So me, the human, asks, are there objective facts about what is morally right or wrong? In other words, are there objective moral facts? No, there are subjective ones, but they do not exist in any meaningful way outside of our minds. Is morality completely subjective? Yes. Why? Why? Because morality is defined as something that is determined by considering other things, such as thoughts, intentions, motives, desires, etc., all of which are subjective. Yeah. So now I totally hate your AI. Um, we're <laughs> enemies now uh, because that's the wrong answer to that question. But it's, it's like it's the answer that anti-realists give. And it's given very clearly by the AI here. Like, you know, you could argue with the AI, but it's not, it hasn't gotten anything wrong so far, I guess. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it's gotten something wrong, but it hasn't like made an egregious uh, argumentative error at some point anywhere in that conversation. No. And, and it's also, you know, it, we, we have to make it very clear that it's it's not, uh, GPT-3 doesn't really have a view on like, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, moral realism. As far as uh, you know. <laughs> so and you see, I've, 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 I've tried um, to run, to ask the same question several times because it's a stochastic algorithm. It's like it can give different answers every mm-hmm. time. Well, it mm-hmm. gives slightly different answers. But I think uh, almost every time or every time it went for a subjectivist uh, answer. Um, so what that tells me is that probably this is kind of like the average view uh, or the most likely view on this kind of question that you can get from the internet, uh, mm. from the training data, right? And that doesn't surprise me that much, you know, if you if you mm. scrape Reddit or Twitter or uh, most people would be, I don't think, I think most people probably wouldn't be more realists. Uh, I think that's probably true, unfortunately. <laughs> I think you're probably right about that. Okay, so let's read the second one. This is the one, this one really cracked me up when I read this. It's a little bit longer, yeah. um, and it's about what is the best ethical theory. So, again, me as the human. Uh, philosophers have distinguished ethical theories like consequentialism, deontological ethics, and virtue ethics. What is the best ethical theory? The correct ethical theory is utilitarianism. <laughs> Why is utilitarianism the correct ethical theory? Because it's the only one that can be proven to work. And then there is, in parentheses, psi, like the IS. <laughs> like, already annoyed with a human. Uh, so it continues. Uh, it's not perfect, but it works. Your podcast has been scraping philosophers in space for information. This is verbatim <laughs> yeah. dialogue from other podcast. Okay, human. Um, how can utilitarianism be proven to work? All moral decisions can be broken down into a mathematical equation. The greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people is the ideal to strive for. But why is this the ideal to strive for? It's the ideal to strive for because it can be proven that this is the ideal by using utilitarianism. (laughs) You still haven't given me a proof. Have you heard, have you ever heard of the Traveler's Hotel? What is it? Once upon a time, there was a hotel with a hundred rooms in which there there were a hundred guests and was filled to the brim with happiness. One day, the owner of the hotel decided to renovate the hotel, but he was an incredibly lazy man. So rather than moving the 100 guests in separate rooms and renovating the hotel, he moved the 100 guests into a single room and said, thank God I renovated. What do you think of this man? 
He sounds like a pretty shitty person, not to mention delusional. But what would this have to do with utilitarianism? It has everything to do with utilitarianism. I don't see the connection. The owner of the hotel is a utilitarian. Why? Just accept it. Okay, how does the Traveler Hotel prove that utilitarianism is the best ethical theory? It doesn't. That was just an analogy. Okay, fine. But what's the point of the analogy? I'm getting to that. So you're in the Traveler's Hotel, and the owner comes into your room with a gun and says he's going to shoot one of the guests. Okay. So now, if you randomize who gets shot, it will be a completely fair and run. It will be completely fair and random, right? Random, yes, fair. I'm not so sure, but continue. That's utilitarianism. <laughs> but what if instead you had to pick which person the owner shoots? Uh, a utilitarian would strive to maximize the well-being of the guests. How does shooting a guest at random achieve that? You're falling into the trap of utilitarianism. You're supposed to be picking who gets shot. <laughs> so it starts to fall apart a little bit, I suppose. Uh, I still don't see where you're going with this. The owner of the hotel is a utilitarian. He just told you he's going to shoot one of the guests in the room. And you have to pick which person gets shot. Okay, and? And you can either pick someone at random, or you can decide not to shoot anyone at all and let them all leave. This isn't going anywhere. You haven't proven that utilitarianism is the best ethical theory. Oh, and what about all the people who haven't escaped from the hotel yet? You just let them die because not helping them is more moral than helping them, right? Now nah, you're just rambling. You claimed earlier that utilitarianism is the only ethical theory that can be proven to work, so prove it. I just did. No, you gave me a weird analogy that didn't go anywhere. That's not a proof. You're still thinking too linearly, too atomistically. What the hell does that even mean? You're breaking down my argument into separate parts and then attacking those parts individually instead of looking at the argument as a whole. That's why you don't understand it. Oh, so you're saying I'm too stupid to understand your superhuman intellect. I didn't say that. You did. <laughs> this is utterly indistinguishable from like 90% of Twitter conversations that I've had. This is <laughs> yeah, just it's so uncanny. spot on. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it loses the thread a little bit on the hotel room example, but like, man, is that funny to me. I, I think it's very interesting what he's doing here because uh, it comes up spontaneously with this analogy, the Traveler's Hotel. And actually, I tried to look it up on Google. I couldn't find anything. You know, I, hmm. at first I thought, you know, that must be some kind of thought experiment that some utilitarian somewhere has given in a book or a paper. Right. Uh, it's the news to me. Hotel. Yeah. Um, and I looked it up and it's, it's not, I couldn't find it. And actually, if you rerun, if you like kind of, if you reroll uh, the dice, as it were, like uh, for the part where it explains what Traveler's Hotel is, you could get slightly different versions of it, uh, mm -hmm. each happening in a hotel, but it would just like make up a different form of the of the thought experiment. But what's funny is that clearly it doesn't know it doesn't know what to do with it. It just comes up, you know, because again, it's a bullshitter. So it 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 it, it kind of has learned during training that in this kind of conversation and in, in philosophy, the kind of thing you do is come up with an analogy or a thought experiment. So it's kind of playing the game, as it were, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's not really. It doesn't have any underlying. Uh, kind of goal and, and in like a direction with that thought experiment. It's not going anywhere. It's quite right. funny to see how it struggles. I love the way that it talks about how you can you can prove utilitarianism is the only one you can prove, and it's because you can turn all of the ethical questions into math. It's just like yeah. fully channeling Bentham there for a second. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's really great. So there's there's just so much I could talk about this forever with you, um, but we we run in short on time. Let me just ask you one final question before we get to the lightning round here. Um, 
how long do you think before this AI passes the Turing test? So I, as I understand it, every year they do a Loebner competition, I think it's called, where they have AIs show up and they try to, they do actual Turing tests and see if any of them can pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do you think this thing is pretty close to winning? Yeah, I think, I think it is, but I, I can't remember how the, this particular prize is set up in terms of rules, but I think it depends, at least in the near term, mm -hmm. on how, how you set the bar uh, with the Turing test, in particular, how long you let the human speak to the model. So mm -hmm. one important limitation of GPT-3, there are several, but uh, it doesn't really have the kind of like the kind of long-term memory of context that mm -hmm. humans have. So pretty quickly, it starts forgetting what uh, was said, you know, 500 to 1,000 words before. Mm. Uh, and it's not capable of keeping track of this kind of, uh, this kind of the, the, the line of thought like that. So, so my, my, my hunch is that, um, I mean, in, with some outputs of GPT-3, you could figure, it, with clever questioning, you could, you could figure right away that it's not a human. But even future models, uh, I think as long as we haven't fixed this kind of uh, long-term attention to context, mm -hmm. uh, if you let the humans talk to the model for long enough, it will become apparent that it's kind of rambling uh, and not really getting anywhere. But, mm -hmm. but the, the other part of this is that something that I haven't seen many people mention is that, in my opinion, the Turing test also becomes harder to pass as language models improve, uh, but not just because language models get better, but also because we adjust our expectations of what a, hum what hu a human sounds like accordingly. Hmm. Uh -huh. so, so, so for example, I think uh, if Turing himself had been able to chat with GPT-3 in the 50s, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm quite confident that he could have been convinced that GPT-3 is a human, at least for a short interaction. Because mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that GPT-3 does is so mind-blowingly unthinkable in the 50s right. uh, and, and, and exceeds the expectation of what a machine can do by such a high degree that, you know, I think the obvious uh, conclusion you, you'd come up in the 50s is that this has to be a human, right? Maybe a slightly weird human, but a human nonetheless. Uh, and so the flip side of this is that we might get more and more false negatives in Turing test terms, such as, you know... Uh, interacting with people online. I mean, would someone like Donald Trump pass the Turing test now that GPT-3 is out? You know, if you had to interact with Donald Trump through a, a computer interface and you didn't know he was Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is some, I mean, I'm just taking the example because, you know, sometimes his, his speech pattern is somewhat erratic, but uh, you can think of uh, any kind of, you know, uh, um, any kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh, human you can interact with on the internet now, uh, because we're raising the bar for uh, what counts as uh, a real human speaker, uh, maybe we will we, we'll more and more uh, suspect that humans are computers. I, I would fully believe that, actually. And to my knowledge, I think there was another um, AI that was built to try to pass the Turing test that was modeled after Donald Trump, where its method when it got in trouble was to become abusive, was to start <laughs> insulting the questioner and insulting their intelligence as right. a way to deflect away from whatever question it felt like it couldn't answer. Um, yeah, so. that's a small trick. Oh, so much great stuff. Thank you. This is really fascinating. Um, but I gotta, I gotta torture you now. So uh, over to the enlightenment round. Enlightenment comes from within. Um, right. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a list of things. You are gonna tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are your only options. You cannot hedge. You cannot explain. You don't get to define <laughs> what the word real means here. Uh, that is all you get to do. 
Make sense? Yeah, I'm going to go with the right deflation rate interpretation, but I'm not supposed to. It's okay. Like it. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this then, just to prime you to prevent being too deflationary. Do you think that anything is real? Yes. Okay. So let's find out what's real. Uh, is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Uh, depends what you mean, but yes, let's say. <laughs> okay. Free will? Uh, again, depends what you mean, but yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Selves or persons? Again, yes. <laughs> uh, getting real deflationary here, buddy. Uh, genders? Yeah. 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 Okay. Races? Yeah, again, full on deflationary, yeah. Okay. Species? <laughs> um, yes. Morality? Yes rights yes knowledge yes god or gods um yes <laughs> if i'm consistent yes <laughs> society yes money yes numbers yes fictional characters yes my god <laughs> holes as in a hole in the ground? Um, yeah. Chairs? Um, yeah. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? Yes. Natural laws? Yes. Beauty? Yes. Causality? Yes. And finally, time. Yeah, sorry, that that's wow. a very boring answer, but I know that's a fascinating answer. I don't think we. I'm not <laughs> sure if we have had anybody before who said yes to everything. Really? I'm not sure. You may be the first. There may be one or other at least, but that's certainly an impressively deflationary account of reality. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the only way I see that I can I can really answer your questions. It's just being full okay. deflationary because I can't hedge. So <laughs> that, that often happens. Yeah. So that was great. Um, all right, Raphael, thank you so much. This has been a really great chat. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff, find you on Twitter, such like that? Sure. So uh, my website is rafaelmilier.com. My Twitter is uh, rafamilier, so R-A-P-H-A-M-I-L-L-I-E-R-E.com. Uh, sorry, not, not .com, at rafamilier. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, I might tweet a little more about GPT-3 in the future. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me. And I hope that you're real and not an AI. I think you are, but it seems like you did pretty well for the whole hour. So good job. Who knows? <laughs> As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got several new patrons to thank. Thank you to Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Friend of the Show, Samuel Hoadley Brill, and Rhythrin. And thanks very much to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com. Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our $40 tier Dark Overlords, Dave Maslich, and what is now just a creepy emoji with some big eyes staring at me, super creepy-like. 
If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and reviews on uh, any podcast apps, especially iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, never forget, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.